Well, we prayed uh, in song, so let's turn again to Matthew 4. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 12, uh, through to the end, uh, which will take us to the end of the introduction uh, to Christ's ministry in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, five onwards, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus up and running. But Matthew 4 completes Matthew's introduction to Christ the Messiah. I don't know if any of you ever done uh, an escape room. Have you come across these? Uh, you, you get locked in a room with some friends and there are various puzzles, challenges you have to solve uh, before you're allowed out. The doors are unlocked and you escape uh, in time. Uh, I did one for the first time uh, just last year with some friends and uh, we got out with about six or seven minutes to go and we we're pretty pleased with ourselves. Uh, so we said to the, the girl who was running it, you know, how was that? And she said, yeah, it was a, it was a good time. You know, you solved the challenge as well. Uh, so we were patting ourselves on the back. Uh, and she said, just, just one thing. Why didn't you turn the lights on when you went in there? <laughs> I said, we had no idea that was part of it. She said, it's, it's not part of it. We just assume people will turn the lights on when they go into a room. <laughs> We'd done the whole thing in the dark. Uh, we thought very cleverly using a little spotlight in the corner to shine different corners of the room to solve the challenges. It's just a light switch. <laughs> uh, you've only got three problems in your life. You might tell me you've got a list of problems as long as your arm, but you've only really got three problems in your life. You and me, three problems. Sin enslaves us. Satan enslaves us. We're captured by him. And so God sends a conquering king to set us free. We've met him already in Matthew's gospel. Sin pollutes us. We're guilty. And so God sends a great priest to sanctify us, to make us holy to forgive us. But there's a third problem, and that is that we're blind. We can't see it. We can't see the problem, and we can't see the solution. We can't see our sin. We can't see our saviour. And so God sends a prophet to open our eyes to the salvation that we need. If Matthew 1 and 2, broadly speaking, introduces us to Christ the King. And Matthew 3, again, broadly speaking, introduces us to Christ the priest. And then Matthew 4, or the remains of Matthew 4 that we're looking at this morning, I think has its focus on Christ the prophet. And that's no surprise. Christ is the Messiah. Christ, Messiah, same word as we said last night, the anointed one. And the anointed offices of the Old Testament were prophet, priest, and king. So it's no surprise that when Christ arrives, then in introducing us to him, Matthew shows how he fulfills each of those three great Old Testament offices that correspond in turn to our three great problems with sin, the slavery, the pollution and the blindness that sin brings. We've had hints already that that Christ is going to be a great prophet. Uh, Much of what Matthew does is informed by the Old Testament. You're bound to pick that up by now. It's not just the quotations but, but the illusions, okay, the pictures that he paints. And so last night we looked at Christ's baptism at the Jordan, where, where John, and, and who's in many ways the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he appears in what we call the New Testament, but he's still in the Old Covenant, if you like. Christ hasn't died, risen, the Spirit hasn't been poured out. We're still in Old Covenant days. Christ and the last of the great Old Testament prophets meet at the Jordan. And that actually is the third great prophetic handover you might say that happens at the Jordan the river Jordan it's at the river Jordan that Moses hands over to Joshua remember as they go into the land Moses can't go in so it's at the Jordan the crossing point that Moses the first of the real great prophets hands on to Joshua his successor it's also at the Jordan that Elijah hands over to Elisha Elijah in many ways kickstarts the the next phase of the ministry of the prophets and Elijah, of course, is associated with John the Baptist and the way he was described in, in Matthew 3 and verse 4, wearing a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. It's meant to evoke images of Elijah in what he wears and what he eats. And of course, Malachi uh, paints the ministry of John the Baptist in exactly those Elijah terms. 
uh, promises another Elijah, Elijah who would return before the great coming of the Lord. And so naturally you'd be thinking, well, if John is Elijah, who's next? Elisha. And Jesus' ministry is in many ways rather like Elisha's. His ministry officially is commenced at the Jordan, taking over from another prophet who went before him, the Elijah before him. It is at the Jordan that he's given the Spirit of God, just as Elisha was, the double portion of the Spirit poured on Elisha at the River Jordan. What was Elisha's ministry? Do you remember anything about Elisha's ministry? What does he do? Well, if I was to say to you, or if you were to say to a Sunday school class, children, who am I talking about? Okay, it's a special man in the Bible. Uh, he heals lepers. Uh, he raises uh, a dead son back to life for a grieving mother. Uh, he miraculously provides this food that never runs out. Uh, he has supernatural knowledge. He knows things he just couldn't possibly know through natural means. He heals the sick. Uh, he can defy gravity. So rather than sinking into water, uh, he can make things float above water, things that ought to sink. He ministers to Gentile soldiers. Who am I speaking about? Every child would say, Jesus. Of course, that's right. It's also true of Elijah, isn't it? Elisha, sorry. Elisha, who cleanses lepers, raises a dead son and makes the axe head float. Remember that strange story? Okay, so it doesn't sink. Now, none of Elisha's work is on the same scale as Jesus's, but it foreshadows Christ's. I think of Elisha's last great act. What's the last thing that Elisha does? The last thing Elisha does is a year after he's died. Remember what happens? He's buried. Strange, strange story, 2 Kings 13. A year after he's buried, uh, they throw another body in the grave. And what happens? As soon as that body, the dead man, touches Elijah's bones, the dead man springs back to life. In his death, Elijah brings life to others. Okay, you just can't miss the parallels, can you? Matthew is deliberately painting Christ in Elisha-like terms. Of course, he's greater than Elisha. But the echoes are there. So there are echoes of Elisha, the great prophet. There are also, of course, in Christ's ministry in Matthew's gospel, uh, echoes of Moses, the first of the prophets. I think of Moses' life. Uh, he's born, and the first thing we know about him is that the wicked Gentile king, Pharaoh, tries to kill him uh, as a baby. He's rescued from death, even though many of his brothers uh, are slaughtered. Uh, he ends up having to flee his homeland. Uh, he returns later. He spends 40 uh, years, doesn't he, uh, in exile. But eventually he comes back, he, he leads his people, uh, or leads God's people, uh, in a great, well, a great redemption, a great exodus. I think Marty brought this out uh, on Saturday morning. Uh, but what happens in that exodus? Uh, the people of God pass through the waters, don't they? The Red Sea. Uh, they're gathered in the 12 tribes at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain uh, and it, God's word is revealed via Moses to God's people. They're given the Ten Commandments, the law book of the Old Testament, if you like. Uh, then Moses comes down and, well, because of rebellion, they head off into the wilderness. And ten times, God tells in the book of Numbers, uh, ten times uh, they rebel. Okay? They show unbelief. Despite what God has done for them, ten times they rebel. They show a lack of faith. What's Jesus' story in the book of Matthew? Well, as a baby, an evil Gentile king tries to persecute him, tries to kill him. He escapes, but his brothers are killed, the slaughter in Bethlehem. He flees, returns to his homeland. His ministry begins in the, the Jordan, at the entry point to the Holy Land of Israel. What does he do? 
Well, his ministry begins, we saw in our reading, he gathers 12 disciples that are going to be reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. And where does he take those 12 new Israelites? Chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and so begins the Sermon on the Mount. See how, how much of an echo of Moses there is in Christ's life? Okay, through the waters, gathers the twelve, up a mountain to reveal God's new covenant way of life. And then actually, once he's finished the Sermon on the Mount, takes us through to uh, the end of chapter 7. And then in, in chapters 8 and 9, uh, we get 10 miracles of Christ. There are 10 uh, miracles. Uh, far more, actually, than anywhere else. That's the most concentrated bit of miraculous work, if you like, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. There are a few scattered out through the rest of the Gospel, but that is the big concentration of Jesus' miracles. Uh, and the real focus in those chapters is on the response of faith. They are miracles that engineer faith. Just as in the, the desert, old Israel rebelled 10 times, well, 10 times in correspondence, that the people that God is forming show faith. So, so Jesus is being painted as the great prophet who's come to open his people's eyes. And in today's uh, passage, uh, we get more flesh on those bones. Uh, let's dive in and look at it in a little bit more detail. First of all, the promised prophet. The promised prophet. This is verses 12 through 17. Uh, Jesus when he hears that John is arrested, we don't get details on that for, for longer uh, later on in uh, Matthew's gospel, so we'll leave that for now. Uh, Jesus withdraws north into Galilee. Essentially, he, he, he moves from uh, being down near, near Jerusalem, near Judea for the baptism, up into basically hillbilly country. Okay, this is leaving London and heading into you know, the north wilds of Yorkshire. It's leaving Belfast and heading, I don't know where. <laughs> I'm not brave enough. Uh, so he's right in the north. Galilee's right up north. He's in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, two of the tribes uh, of Israel, two of those 12 tribes who were situated. You remember each of the tribes was allotted an area of land. Naphtali and Zebulun are right up the top. Uh, and they are the lands of darkness. The, the, the prophecy uh, quoted, verse 15 and 16 from Isaiah Isaiah 9, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, Matthew's quoting from Isaiah 9. And that the lands of Naphtali and Zebulun in particular are lands of darkness because they're the ones that are conquered first when the Assyrians come in. Okay, so the, the first fulfillment if you like of that prophecy is the Assyrians sweep in and because they're coming from that direction they, they conquer those tribes first those are the the, the territories that uh, that the Gentiles just sweep through first they become lands of darkness they are literally the the region of death see verse 16 those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death okay when the Assyrians invaded it's bad news and it was bad news for those tribes it's also why they're called Galilee of the Gentiles from then onwards, uh, much of that region was, was mixed. Okay, it was no longer purely Jewish. Okay, the pure uh, tribal blood, if you like, was corrupted by Assyrian uh, invaders. But, but by now, the, the darkness has spread. Uh, and really the whole land of Israel uh, has become darkened. Uh, the whole land of Israel uh, have become those who dwell in darkness and therefore need this great light. Uh, the reason we need a prophet, the reason we need the great light of the world is that we are naturally people uh, of darkness. What is darkness? Well, darkness is confusion, isn't it? Uh, uncertainty, lack of clarity. Uh, some of you will feel this. Some of you will feel this. Uh, your life just feels dark. You don't know what you're doing. You don't understand what's going on. I spoke to a family member actually recently and not, not converted, not a, not a Christian, not a believer. And life is just a massive confusion. What's the point? She's done okay. Uh, job's gone well. She's made some money. 
She's got friends. She's living in a nice place in London, but she's just thinking, what, why? What's the point? What? Life doesn't make sense. And without God, it never will. Now, some of us can scrabble around for a while and seem to do okay. But as long as we stay away from Christ, then, then life will remain darkness. Now, we've no idea how to escape from this darkness. And deep down, it is terrifying. For those who don't know Christ, deep down, it is terrifying. We might cover it. Uh, we might have sort of gallows humour. Uh, we might bluff it out. But no one escapes this darkness. And ultimately, this darkness brings with it the shadow of death. That is the final darkness. Jesus later will use the images of being cast out into utter darkness as a picture again of hell. If yesterday uh, the language was of, of fire that is unquenchable, uh, then later in the gospel, that terror of being in the pitch black. Have you ever been in utter darkness? It's pretty rare nowadays, isn't it, with street lighting and all the rest. I remember a year or so I was in, I was in some caves uh, and the guy just switched off the lights and you, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And it is terrifying. Uh, these images of judgment are, are there to, to terrify us. Okay, if you're someone at the moment who doesn't trust Christ, uh, then you, you will know a little what this darkness is, but it is nothing compared to what is to come. Christ has come to rescue you from that as the light of the world. And even as Christians, we know something of this darkness. Uh, yes, Christ has come and he, he's spoken his gospel word, as we'll see, and, and we, we've been brought to light. But, but we're not yet purified from sin entirely, are we? Uh, there is still corruption within us. I think of Paul's words, you know, Paul's word, we, now we see in a mirror dimly. Okay, we, we do know, we do see the truth, but it's not always 100% clear, is it? There are times we doubt. There's times when that, the darkness creeps in. We, we, don't, we don't see him face to face as we will one day. And so worries creep up on us, doubts niggle. It's like trying to shave in the morning in the mirror uh, when the mirror is kind of clogged up with steam. Put your makeup on. Try and do both genders. Look at that. All things to all men and women. Uh, sometimes you read the Bible, you don't instantly rejoice. You hear a preacher. Uh, and you don't instantly, you're not instantly thrilled. And it's not always just the preacher's fault. <laughs> okay? we, our hearts are, are not yet so purified from the, this darkness, this clouding, uh, that everything just clicks into place. The darkness has got inside, as it were. And that's, that's one of the main problems in our life, as we began. We need clarity. We need vision. <laughs> and so Jesus comes as, verse 16, the light, the great light. Uh, this is going to fulfill uh, says Matthew, Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 9, all the way through Matthew's gospel, Jesus is fulfilling everything. Sometimes it's direct prophecies. You know, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5. Sometimes it's patterns and the slaughter in, in, in Jeremiah, uh, prophesied in Jeremiah of the innocents. Uh, here it's, it's Isaiah 9 and a fairly direct fulfillment. Uh, the light has finally come to the world. Uh, Jesus can reveal the truth because, well, because he is God, God in the flesh. The light has come. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Christ. And that's such good news because it means there isn't a hidden God out there. There isn't a God who is behind Jesus and different. I needn't fear that, that I don't know, God the Father is somehow going to treat me differently than Christ. If I want to know what God is like, I can look at Christ and there he is the light. He is, he is what I need to know about God. God's character is perfectly revealed uh, in Christ, flawlessly. He is the very image of God, the very revelation of God. He is the word of God, to use phrases from elsewhere uh, in Scripture. Uh, now, and let me say this, I need to be careful here. But, but, but note in verse 16, the light is Jesus, not the Bible. The light is Jesus, not the Bible. Now, I need to be really careful here. <laughs> uh, the, the point ultimately that it is, is that it is Christ who enlightens you. Christ who opens your eyes. Christ who shows you the truth. Now, as we'll see, he does that through the scriptures. 
Okay, so don't let, don't let anything I say now in any way undermine the place of scripture in the Christian life. But you can love scripture and still not, not come to Christ, can't you? You can be a person of the book, but, but not of Christ. Now, you can't be a person of Christ and not of the book. Okay, so if you love Christ, you will love his word. You can't take Christ without the word. But it is possible, tragically, to love the word in inverted commas, in sorts, and not love Christ. Think of Jesus' words to the Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, they're right, aren't they? It's in the scriptures you have eternal life. Hey, don't we teach our kids that all the time? The Bible are the words of life? But Jesus goes on. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It is possible to love studying God's word for its own sake. Kind of like some people love studying Shakespeare. Okay, they can analyse the plays, the sonnets, the poetry. They can uh, talk about the imagery. They can give stirring talks on the message, the philosophy, okay, the wisdom. And people can do that with the Bible. We love studying the scriptures because we love doctrine. Perhaps we like being able to correct people who are wrong. We like refuting error, spotting heresy. We like knowing the, the key theme of the book of Hebrews. We like being able to explain that we know what the Colossian heresy was. Uh, we know, and others don't. Scripture can give us authority, power over others. We're seen as the, the bright one, the godly one, the holy one, because we know the answers to these difficult theological questions. But actually, we're not interested in Christ and his glory. So imagine you, um, you spend a whole weekend at the castle and Mr. or Mrs. Wright just hasn't turned up. And uh, you start writing to a, a girl in America. You exchange letters, you fall in love, and you don't meet until the wedding day. And she comes down the aisle and you don't look at her. You don't talk to her. You go through the ceremony and you stand up to give your, your groom's speech. And you say, look at these letters. Aren't they beautiful? Look at the handwriting. Okay, look at the sentence construction. Okay, look at the way she weaves themes in over time. Aren't they amazing? And someone says, you know, what about your wife? What? Oh, yeah. Well, you know. Christ is the light. The words are leading to lead you to the word, as it were. You can't have Christ without his word. But tragically, some people take his word without him. Jesus is the light. He is the only one who can open our eyes. And what does he do? How does he do it? Well, verse 17, he does it by preaching. I wonder if that's what we would expect. Maybe we're used to it. You know, we're evangelicals. We're trained to think about God's word and preaching and all the rest of it. But in many ways, verse 17 would come as a huge disappointment. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. What might that, a Jew who first hears that, what might they think? Well, they might think of the, the fiery, cloudy pillar that, that led them through the desert where God appeared to them. You know, they, they could see him almost, as it were. Burning fire, the glory cloud that descends on the tabernacle and the temple. Spectacular, impressive. There is a light to lead us. Very literally, we can follow him through the, the desert of Sinai. We're safe. He's with us. The power and the glory. And here he's going to come again. I can't wait for that light to dawn. And what happens? A carpenter turns up and starts preaching. What a letdown. God coming into a dark world. Light's going to dawn. A great light. Where are the angels? Where are the trumpets? Where are the signs in the sky? It's just a man speaking with a dozen followers. A Jewish tradesman wandering around a village preaching to crowds of tens, hundreds, maybe thousands on a good day. We're used to the story of Jesus, aren't we? So it makes sense to us. And we lose the, I don't know what the right word is, the shock, the surprise, the absurdity of it, if I can say that reverently. I mean, if we were to put it into... Northern Irish terms. Okay. If, you, if, you were a first, if you were a believer, okay, you're one of the 12 disciples, and you're, you're, you're trying to 
tell your friend, you're, you're off maybe Matthew 10, they're sent off on that preaching mission, you remember, around, around uh, Israel. And you're trying to tell other Israelites that God has come. Okay, he's here, the Messiah is here, God has come in the flesh, the light has dawned. And, and then you tell people it's a, it's a carpenter or a carpenter's son from Galilee. Random little place up north. It's something like you today having to go out to your friends and saying, look, I found God. God is here on earth. And they say, come on, you're joking. On earth? You've seen God? Yeah, yeah, I've seen God. He's here in the flesh. He's come as a man. Well, tell me about him. He's not on the news yet. No, 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 no it's not on the news yet. But, but let me tell you about him. He's called Tim. He's a plumber. Comes from a little village near Lurgan. <laughs> and he's got literally 12 people following him now. He's the saviour of the earth. <laughs> now, again, I don't want to be irreverent here, but it's, it's that mad-sounding a message. Think of 1 Corinthians. Paul says the gospel is foolishness. It's a crazy-sounding message. Because God comes in weakness, not strength. Okay, this is the theology of the cross, you might say. God is not found where, with worldly thoughts, we might expect him to be found. It's not found where the philosophers would expect to find him with clever arguments and all the rest. He's not even found in power and spectacle and and, uh, impressive show as the Jews would expect. Rather, he hides himself. He comes in a foolish-sounding message. He comes to the weak. And our only hope is him finding us, not us finding him. He comes and he preaches. Christ is the great Old Testament prophet, the one predicted in the Old Testament. So yes, he comes to to deal with our sin as priests, to sanctify us, to forgive us, to make us holy. He comes to rule over us and and conquer our enemies as king. But he also comes to open our eyes to that message. And without that, without that prophetic work of Christ, we'd be lost. If I can put it this way, if, if Christ had only died for our sins and hadn't also come as prophet, we'd never be saved. It'd be like curing, imagine you had a cure for blindness, and putting it in a bottle on a shelf amongst a hundred other bottles in a dark room, and saying to, 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 to a blind man, the cure is there, it's yours. Just take it. You're cruel, you can't do it. What you need is for that cure to be administered to you, to Christ to come and, and pour the salve on your eyes so, so your eyes can be opened. That's what he does. And he does by preaching to us. Now, how does he preach to us today? We're going to come back to that. But, but see that Jesus is preaching. Jesus comes preaching. And what is his message, the Messiah's message? Verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the second big point, if you like, the Messiah's message. The first public words of Jesus in his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sorry. Same as John the Baptist. One gospel. Repent and believe. Let me ask you, what do these words mean to you? I'd be really interested to know this. When, I hear the, when you hear this phrase, what, what do you think? Here I stand. Okay, just think to yourself, does, does that ring any bells? Here I stand. Let's make that a non-rhetorical question. Here I stand. What, what does it mean to you? Anyone, anyone, anyone be brave? Give me. Okay, so our Westminster theological graduate has gone Luther. Okay, <laughs> Luther's words... At the Diet of Worms, 18th of April, 1521, Martin Luther, uh, who has has just begun to dawn on him, the the gospel message, essentially, were justified by faith alone. He stood in front of the emperor. He he may well get killed for this. Um, He's asked to recant his views. And he's standing there, okay, basically alone. And he's told... Um, you, must, you must take back what you've said about us being justified by faith alone and these great Reformation gospel truths. He says this, Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. 
Unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther was terrified, expected to die. His conscience was torn. I'm going against everything the church is saying to me. But I can't go against the word of God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. I must do what Christ is saying to me. That, that is a solid ground to stand on. Now, let me ask you this, okay? Now, you're going to be braver this time. Here I stand. Did that ring any other bells? Here I stand. What if I'd sung it? Yeah, I can hear it whispered. None of you being brave, are you? Anyone seen Frozen? Yeah. Let it go. A princess stamps her little foot. Here I stand, all the rest. I'm not going to sing it. It's a fascinating little contrast. What does she sing? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I have been constrained by others. But now I'm free. Freedom to follow my own heart. Let, let it go. Let out whatever's inside. I should just be me. Whatever's inside me, I ought to express. I ought not to be bound by anything outside me. Okay, that's been my problem so far. I've let what other people think. Or I've let outside constraints restrict me. But now I'm just going to let it go. Stomp a little foot. Shoot off a little ice crystals. All the rest of it. <laughs> Who is anyone else to tell you that you shouldn't just be yourself, be true to yourself? Now, what princess is that? Is that Anna? Sorry. Oh, there we go. See, you all knew it. None of you would say it earlier, would you? You all knew it. Elsa, thank you. I once got that wrong in a primary school and got 300 kids shouting at me. When I, I, think I called her Anna, not Anna, or something on hands, not Hans. Anyway, Elsa. 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 It expresses today's culture, doesn't she? Okay. Let it go. Nothing should constrain you. Here I stand and I'm just me. It is the essence of the gender movement. You must be what you feel to be. And don't let anything or anybody outside you tell you otherwise. Just do what comes from within. That is true authenticity. That is real goodness, morality. The two statements, here I stand, could not be more opposite. Luther, here I stand on the word of God. Although it's going to cost me my life and be very painful to me, here I must stand, constrained by the word of God. Modern day culture, summarised by Disney. Here I stand and I'm just me and let it all out from within. And Jesus turns up and says, repent, do not be yourself. Jesus could not be less Disney. That, 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 that film, honestly, terrible film. Okay, I'm not anti-cinema or anything, and I'm in Northern Ireland, careful with the rest of it, but, but it, it's, it's, it, you know, it is preaching the most ungospel message you've ever heard. Jesus' message, repent, turn around. Who you are is not okay. It's not that we're going to be beating ourselves up or hating, you know, that sort of but repent because we are sinners, we are rebels. We need to turn around, change our minds. It's the same message as the prophets, Malachi, the last of the prophets, return to me. The same message. Abraham, when God calls Abraham, there's a geographical turnaround. You ever pick that? They're wandering further and further away from Eden. From, from the day Adam and Eve are kicked out, they moved east of Eden. And they keep moving the geography, east and east and east and east, until you get Abraham. And when Abraham is called, he is turned and he goes back west. It's a picture of repentance, turned around. His life called and turned around. The idea is you turn from False gods to the real God. Again, like last night, is your life one of repentance? C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's the call, the prophetic call of Christ. Lay down your arms and turn around. So repentance isn't just feeling guilty. Loads of people feel guilty. Judas felt guilty. It's not less than that. But sometimes you feel guilty because you're ashamed of being caught or ashamed that you've been caught. It's embarrassing to be caught in some sense, even in our own culture. And neither is repentance just feeling scared. 
I don't want to get into trouble. You know, a thief doesn't want to go to jail. It's not that he wants to stop stealing particularly, he just doesn't want to go to prison. It, neither is it just saying sorry. Uh, as if words alone uh, were enough. Uh, confession, if I can put this rightly, confession is not enough. We are to turn around and follow the prophetic king. Uh, I've talked about Christ as prophet, priest and king. You can't really separate these three out. Uh, yes, the focus in, in Matthew 4, I think, is more on the prophet, but he is a kingly prophet. That's why you obey him. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. Repentance needs to be complete all of our life comes under his authority. Uh, apparently Clovis, who's one of those Frankish kings uh, back in the, the early Middle Ages, uh, he, he, um, he was a king and he, his, his, his tribe were converted to Christ uh, by a, a missionary. It's one of those conversions where you kind of read about it and you think, mm, not so sure. But anyway, in that baptism, okay, they went down into the water and Clovis told his warriors they would go down in the river, but each of them were to raise their right arm in the air and so when they were baptised, that their right arm would stay above the water. Why? Because their right arm was their sword arm. And Clovis didn't want his men to have their sword arm, their fighting arm, submitting to Christ. I will give my life to Christ. I want forgiveness. I want eternal life. I want heaven. But I also want to still be able to cope and violently kill my enemies. Okay? When you're baptised, and I'm not talking method here. <laughs> I'm a Presbyterian. I sprinkle, you know. But... but because, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, uh, I, so I'm not talking method, but when you were baptised, all of you were baptised, everything. Uh, it's complete, it's costly, it's the killing of that independence. It's countercultural, certainly. But it is good. Because it comes in response to a, a gracious invitation. It's God inviting you back. And until you see that it's a good invitation, you, you just never will repent. No one will repent until they see that it's safe and good to do so. In, in that sense, repentance is always twinned with faith. Until you see the goodness of God in the gospel, the goodness of God in Christ, you won't repent because it's just too scary. Turn around and go back to this God who's angry with me. Well, I'm not going to do it. Uh, repentance and faith are inseparable. They're like thunder and lightning, as the Puritans used to say. You can distinguish them, but they're inseparable. And in a sense, faith has the priority. I believe that Christ has died for my sins and will forgive me, and therefore I turn. Repentance isn't a good work, is it, that kind of earns our forgiveness? No, we see the goodness of Christ, the forgiveness in the gospel, and we turn from our old life to the new. The Messiah's message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm not going to speak about the kingdom of heaven at hand. We touched on that uh, last night. But finally this morning, if we've looked at uh, the Messiah and his message, let's look at his ministry. Uh, verses 18 through 25. Uh, Jesus, verse 18, is by the Sea of Galilee and he sees the, the fishermen, Simon, uh, as he called Peter later on, and Andrew. Uh, it's likely he's known them for a while already, uh, probably about a year uh, they're not particularly poor from the disciples. That, you know, we say, oh, the you know, disciples were completely literate, working class. They knew nothing. They were poor. You know. Well, they're probably, to be honest, a bit more middle class. They're running a fishing business. They have a bunch of boats. That business at the end of John's Gospel is still in action. You know, they go back to the boats. It survived a good, good while without them. It, they have servants running things, so they're doing okay for themselves. They're not rich, but they're doing okay. And they certainly weren't impressive, but they weren't. Well, they weren't at the bottom of the par, we might say. I think of Matthew, the tax collector, doing all right for himself. But anyway, Jesus sees them and he calls them. Verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And here we go. This is where you do your evangelism sermon, isn't it? Look, Jesus calls us to be fishers of men. Are you fishing for people? Are you? Interestingly, if you read older sermons, older writers, they don't do that at all. The jump isn't for them. Jesus called the disciples, therefore he calls you. Children, are you asking your children to come along to youth club? Uh, you know, are you evangelising the person next door to you in the office? That's not what they do with it. They treat this passage 
uh, rather as a kind of a, a, a picture of Christ calling church officers, as we might call them, uh, appointing officers in his church, here apostles uh, as they become. So let's look at, two as- let's look at this, this call under two aspects. First of all, the call to follow. Uh, verse 9, it's, it's there, the call, isn't it? Follow me. And they leave their nets, verse 20, and their families. In a general sense, I think this is true of all of us, isn't it? Uh, we see this same call throughout the gospel. Uh, Matthew 19, follow me, Jesus says to the rich man. Leave your wealth behind and follow me. Uh, Matthew 8, the, the, the guy whose father's just died, Jesus says, follow me, leave your family and follow me. Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So yes, I think that follow me call is one that we can apply to all of us. It is a general sense. We are all disciples, of course. And that in many ways is the, the, the essence of being a disciple, isn't it? Following Christ, leaving behind anything that will hinder us, draw us away from him and turning and following him. Uh, That should be the picture in your life. Him at the front uh, and you behind, going where he wants you to go, doing what he wants you to do. So rather than I'll choose a job and then see if I can fit Jesus and a good church in, we look at things the other way around. But there is a specific call here, I think, to the apostles. These are the apostles who are about to be appointed to that role. Uh, it's formalised uh, a few chapters later. Uh, but, but here is the beginning uh, of that great call. And of course, we're not called to be apostles, to be part of the twelve. And so how would we apply that, uh, this passage uh, to us today, as it were? Well, think of Ephesians 4. And Christ's gifts to the church. When you think of spiritual gifts, what do you think? Probably in our, our own climate, I would guess. Uh, our mind goes straight away to uh, the tongues, prophecy, the kind of gifts that we debate. And we're not going to talk about those. Now, or in question time. <laughs> uh, Ephesians 4 talks about Christ giving gifts. What does he say? Uh, Paul say, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And what are those gifts? Verse 11, he gave the apostles. Well, that's who we see beginning to be formed here. The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, if you like, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Uh, In Matthew 4, uh, Christ begins appointing official officers, if you like, official roles in his church. He does it again properly, if you like, in Matthew 10, the appointment of all 12 as apostles. Some people will be called to full-time ministry. No one will be called to be an apostle, that's gone, in this sense at least. But, but that, that, that ministry is passed on to pastor-teachers. It is not a human invention that your church has elders, or whatever you call them, I don't want to get in those debates now, but officially appointed, I'm going to call them elders. Because the Bible calls them elders. <laughs> Why is that important? We've been speaking about Christ preaching. How do you hear Christ preach today? I would say, well, through reading the word of God, that's true. That the Bible is Christ's word to you, God's word. But you don't hear him preaching quite when you read the Bible on your own, do you? It is God's word to you. Don't, don't mishear me on that. But you're not hearing him preach quite that the way you hear Christ preach to you today is when your minister elder stands up and preaches to you on a Sunday. Let me, let me just read you some quotes that might surprise you. Here's Luther, Martin Luther. It is an excellent thing that every honest pastor and preacher's mouth is Christ's mouth. John Calvin, when a man has climbed into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. Henry Bullinger, who wrote one of the confessions of the... Uh, Second Obedic Confession, Reformation. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, Rogers, the text, 
So in the scripture, is the word of God abridged? Preaching is the word of God enlarged. Now, does that shock you? Whoa, just a minute. The Bible is the word of God. Why are you now saying that it's God speaking to us when a preacher preaches? But they're quite right. They're quite right. Think of Jesus, Matthew 23, 10. You have one teacher, one instructor, the Christ. You've only ever had one teacher, ultimately, one preacher, Christ. You might have loads of ministers over your life, but you've only ever one teacher. Loads of speakers at the castle, but only one teacher, Christ. But he speaks through men, appointed to this preaching office. I think of Paul's description of Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed, used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. Now, man of God there doesn't just mean, I don't know, godly man or holy man. Man of God is a phrase from the Old Testament. The man of God in the Old Testament was the prophet. Elijah is always called the man of God. Timothy is carrying on the prophetic ministry. What did prophets do? They spoke the word of God. Timothy is speaking the word of God. But how is he doing it? Not because he is a prophet in the kind of he receives directly from God and just speaks way. But, well, what's Paul just telling him to do in that very passage? Preach the word. As a minister preaches faithfully from the scriptures, you are hearing God speak to you. Now, of course, if he's unfaithful to the scriptures, that is not God speaking to you. Okay? So it's not just that preaching is the word of God, no matter what he's saying. Hear that little phrase again, preaching of the word of God is the word of God. So it's not that any old Tom, Dick or Harry stands up and says, oh, I'm a preacher, so you must listen to me, I'm speaking the word of God. Is speaking God's word? Of course not. It's only if they're preaching the Bible. That's why it's so important that ministers are teaching the scriptures to you, not what popped into their head on the way to church that morning or what they feel God is saying. No, the word of God is what guides everything. But when it is faithfully taught, then it is Christ speaking to you. It is not simply someone speaking to you about Christ. It is how Christ meets his people. Why would we preach otherwise? Okay, probably in your church, you have a reading or two, which might take five minutes in your service, and then the preacher stands up and speaks for half an hour. Why is that? Why not have a, a Bible reading for half an hour and the preacher just give five minutes? Because God wants his word taught. He gives officers, I keep using that word, he gives the gifts of church leaders, teachers, the gift of teachers with his word, because that is where you meet Christ as he speaks in his word. So Christ has a thousand accents. He might sound Scottish or Welsh or Northern Irish or English, dare I say it. But there's only one teacher. Romans. Amazing. Well, think of Ephesians 2, actually, where Paul says, he, are you Christ, came and preached to you. Ephesians 2, 17. Huh? Christ never went to Ephesus. Christ preached to the Ephesians? How did that happen? Well, through the preaching, not done by the, the physical mouth of Christ. Or Romans 10, the famous passage we use to, to, for missionary work. Uh, Romans 10, and some often terrible translation. Uh, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? There's, there's no of there. Literally, it's how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Okay, hearing words in, in Greek, if you're interested, take the genitive, and that's why they stick it of him. It shouldn't be that. How are they to hear him whom they have never heard? Therefore, go and preach, says Paul. And he's not talking to apostles, he's talking to Romans. You hear Christ when people faithfully preach his word. Some of you will be called to ministry. And it is the greatest privilege to preach. But others, all of us, will sit in church week by week and we mustn't think, I'm just hearing a lecture about Christ. A short lecture or a long lecture. Okay? I'm not, it's not just information. It is where mysteriously Christ speaks to us and brings light into our lives. We are meeting him. Uh, and those... Uh, fishermen who are preachers or become preachers. They have a, a particular call here, uh, the call to fish. In general, 
Are we all fishers? Well, yes and no. Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations. It's given first of all to the apostles, isn't it? And you always got to be careful when a, when a command is given to the apostles, is it given directly to all of us as individual Christians? Or it, it takes a bit of work teasing that out. I would say the safest way to apply that passage is to say the church is given the job of evangelism, fishing. What part you as an individual play in it will, will differ. Okay, we've got different gifts, different abilities. A bit like an army. Okay, you need some people who are firing the bullets, but you need some people who are supplying the bullets. Some people who are medics, some people who are cooking the food to supply them, some people are driving the tanks, some people are making the plans. If the British Army had a rule, every soldier must fire at least one bullet at the enemy every battle, chaos. It's not going to work very well. You need everyone playing their part. I think we've done a great disservice uh, often to the church by telling every individual Christian that you know, they must say the, tell the gospel to someone every day. I don't think that's a clear command. We're all part of this work of evangelism, but we'll do it in different ways. Of course, we want to be ready to give an answer when it comes up. We want to live holy lives and we pray and all the rest of it. But, but whether we're necessarily always the one doing the speaking, well, that's not the main emphasis. It's rather as a church, we're to go out to the nations and find, catch these fish for Christ. But some will specifically be called to be evangelists. That will be their work. And what are they called? Well, they're called to preach of the Christ who has come to shine his light on the world. We need to wrap up. We haven't really got time to look at verses 23 through 25. But essentially there we get Christ preaching uh, and, and healing, doing his miracles. And he is a Christ who's full uh, of compassion. A Christ who cares for the lost and wants to rescue them. And so Matthew's introduced us to this mighty son of God, this, this great king who becomes weak for you on the cross and dies, seemingly conquered by death, in order that he might rise again and give you victory over Satan and sin and death itself. Matthew's introduced us to the holy son of God, the perfect man, the great high priest, who, although he's burningly pure, takes your corruption on himself and plunges himself under the, into the waters of judgment, under the, the fiery judgment of God, in order to cleanse you and open up the gates of heaven for you. Matthew's introduced us to uh, the great prophetic son of God, the one who is the very word of God, who lives a life of perfect obedience, who never varies from that word, and yet, who can bend on his knees in Gethsemane and pray, Father, take this cup from me. Hear nothing in reply. The voice of heaven silent to him. And yet still, head to the cross in order that you and I might not have to. He is great, the great prophet, the great priest, the great king. He has conquered every enemy in your life. He has everything you need for life of godliness, of salvation, of joy, and everything, he, everything has been done for those gates of heaven to be opened to you. Uh, he is the Messiah and the only one to whom we can flee, and he is the Messiah full of compassion to welcome you in. Let's pray.